Welcome to the Bad and Bitchy Podcast. And we are back just in time for 2021, a year that promised us nothing. Um, This year uh, just started. We're not even in mid-January and it's already crap. So I would say buckle in, strap on, do what you got to do and just ride the wave. We still have this awful pandemic, um, which is seems to be getting worse before it gets better. We have a slow vaccine rollout. We have um, an insurrection in the United States. We have all sorts of things going on. And as I said, you know, the January's not even half done yet. So... Why not let me, let you roll through this with at least some type of intersectional perspective? Because there seems to be just a lot of issues going on that are intersectional by nature, but are not talked about in an intersectional manner, even though I think by now that that would have been more of a priority just in the media landscape. But as we've said before on this podcast, the media is stubborn and so am I. So let me just take care of some admin. I want to introduce you to Not In My Color, which is my company with my business partner, Anna Robson. And basically what we do is we build inclusive anti-racist organizations through our different services, which include everything from education to actual operational um, policy change. Heads up, we're also starting an anti-racism masterclass that starts in mid-February. Go to notinmycolor.com slash masterclass to enroll. Um, it'll give you more details on that web page. You can use this for professional development and um, tell others that you think will be like ready and for this class because not everybody is ready to really learn about anti-racism, let's be honest. Um, again, that's not in my color com slash masterclass. I would also like to point out that um, I really am committed to keeping this podcast free. I know a lot of podcasts have um, tiers for payment and I didn't really want to do that with this podcast um, just because I think this information that we dig up is really worthwhile and really should be accessible to everybody. However, that doesn't mean that I'm turning away donations because as you know, black women's labor is usually undervalued. So you can, I know you, I know a lot of you guys don't like Patreon and that's fine. If you want to 
donate to me directly, um, you can donate to me, Erica, at notinmycolor.com through email transfers or, sorry, interact transfers or something like that. Um, if you want to donate through a credit card, um, just email the pod, badandbpod at gmail.com. So also, another thing I want to do is I kind of want to do a mailbag for this podcast because I think that that would be a great learning opportunity. And then if you feel like you're going through something or you have some questions, send them to me, badandbpod at gmail.com. I've enlisted the help of a couple of other people who are doing some behind the scenes work in this pod. So, um, it's better to just email the general pod for questions and comments. And if you want to donate to the pod, just donate Erica at notinmycolor.com. And that's Erica with a C people and not in my color with a U. So we'll be back right after this with our first topic. Let's get into it. Last week was the Georgia runoff, Senate runoff election. On Tuesday, Democrats won both Georgia runoff elections. Democrat Raphael Warnock defeated Republican Senator Kelly Loeffler, Leffler, excuse me, 50.8% to 49.2% in the special election. And Democrat John Ossoff defeated Republican David Perdue. 50.4% to 49.6%. Now, this is the honestly the best thing that happened this week. It there's a lot of reasons why which I will go through, um but mainly both Republicans and Democrats have 50 Senate seats with VP Kamala Harris being the tiebreaker. The Democrats control the Senate. Now, this is important because this will allow Joe Biden to enact his policy agenda. Now, there's still the filibuster and the filibuster mandates 60 votes to pass major legislation and even bills that can get by with a simple majority still have to satisfy right leaning Democrats. No Green New Deal or single payer health care will be on the horizon. However, Biden's admin picks can be confirmed solely with Democratic votes and Republican investigatory powers will be greatly diminished. No more Benghazi, no more uh, Obamacare challenges, at least in the Senate and the House. So I think we've seen the beginning of this 
but watch the GOP bloodletting begin since they lost both Congress and the presidency. So how did this happen? Like, what happened in Georgia? Well, turnout was key. 90% of what it was in the general election. So um, a lot of times I personally say that turn off, turnout is more important than uh, average support. A lot of the polls you see going into elections will tell you the percent support of the electorate. But if the electorate doesn't turn out to vote, then that doesn't matter. Now, turnout in this election was off the charts. Um, It made the runoff electorate look more like the general election electorate than it typically looks. Now, usually in runoffs, you'll see more Republicans come out, but this time Democrats really churned out the vote. Suburban counties like Clayton, DeKalb County and Fulton County in the Atlanta metropolitan area, Warnock did 6% percentage points better than Biden, as well as more rural counties like Randolph in Georgia's Black Belt. And turnout amongst Black voters seemed to have been up as well. Black Americans made up 32% of the runoff electorate, up from 29% in November for the general. Warnock and Ossoff slightly underperformed Biden in counties with a particularly high share of college-educated white voters, such as Foresight, where 52% of the population has a college degree, but only 3% is black. Democratic senators owe their wins to black voters in Georgia, hands down. So you may ask what happened to the GOP vote, um, or you may not be asking and you may not care, but I'm going to tell you anyway. The GOP turnout seems to have been down. GOP party officials worried that some Republicans might be discouraged from voting due to Trump's continued lies about election fraud. So I know that, you know, just watching around social media, that some of Uh, the white voters voting for Trump really wanted to vote for Trump. And they felt that the elections were rigged. So why bother voting anyway? And this, the the funny thing is, Trump probably ended up dampening um, turnout from his own party because of his election frauds claim. (laughs) The irony of life, everybody. Early in absentee voting, lag behind redder parts of the in redder parts of the states for instance and while republicans hoped election day turnout would make up for this deficit gop voters were generally less likely to vote by mail or at early voting locations so vote by mail usually takes a little bit longer i know all night the leads were flipping back and forth back and forth um it was like a heart attack watching a heart attack like just form um but what the problem with that is is that you never know who's going to turn out if you're a republican until they turn out whereas if you know that vote by mail is up or early voting is up then you know as a democrat that you have a damn good chance of winning and that's what happened in this election 
early voting rec- they I think they set early voting records in many counties. Roughly 93% of black voters supported Ossoff and Warnock. And according to Pew Research Center, the black voting bloc has grown to make up a third of vote Georgia's electorate in the last two decades. Um, Corey Bush, who is uh, the newest part of the squad and who was um, a Ferguson, Missouri protester and was uh, actually assaulted by um, a Ferguson police officer, came back and won, uh, came back and is now a congresswoman. And she tweeted, black women did this. But this just isn't black girl magic. This is the result of pure organizing labor and love that black women have poured into Georgia. And such is the case of the hard work by Stacey Abrams through her org, Fair Fight. Um, So Stacey Abrams is um, everybody's new hero because of what she's been able to do, not only in Georgia for the runoff, but it's because of Stacey Abrams, Fair Fight, and a few others who I always forget their names, uh, have really, really worked hard to organize Georgia voting. Um, so Abrams, the former minority leader of the Georgia State House, has spent a decade building a democratic political infrastructure in the state, first with her new Georgia project, and now with Fair Fight, the voting rights organization she, she founded in the wake of her losing her campaign for governor in 2018. And there is a Bad and Bitchy episode talking about that. I cannot remember the name. I apologize. But um, I'll see if I can dig it out for you guys. Um, Brian Kemp and the same state um, Se- secretary of state of Georgia who Trump berated in a telephone call uh, a couple days earlier, really colluded to um, to enact voter suppression laws in Georgia uh, so that Stacey Abrams would lose that vote. And it worked. So for her to come back and really deliver Georgia to the Democrats nationally is quite a big, fuck you, to be honest. Her political infrastructure and strategy of increasing turnout among Black, Latino, and Asian voters laid the groundwork for both Joe Biden's victory in November and the Democrats' performance in the Senate races. Numerous other women, Black women, have led decades-long organizing efforts to transform the state's electorate. Let's hear how she did it. My part was that when I became Democratic leader in 2010, I started building an infrastructure to focus on registration, on recruiting and training staff, on making certain we were in every single county. And I advanced that through multiple cycles. In 2018, I finally had enough money to do all the things we dreamed of. I raised $40 million for my my gubernatorial race, and we kept raising money after I lost to keep focusing on keeping this infrastructure in place. We worked with other organizations. We helped seed some of those groups, including the New Georgia Project, which I founded, Fair Fight and Fair Count. And we had you know, million, you know, two million voters who understood that their voices were needed and they showed up. 
Well, if you look at the work done by Helen Butler and then say you fought and by Helen Kim Ho, who was working early in the Korean and Asian American communities, Jerry Gonzalez, who is doing a lot of work with the Latino communities, what we've seen over the last decade has been a steady change in demography. But we know that electoral politics always lag behind demographic change. And what we've been able to do in this state is really acknowledge, harness, and now invest in that demographic change. And the reality is that trend is not going to reverse itself. We are going to continue to see a diversification of the state of Georgia. By the end of this decade, we assume uh, a lot of the projections say that Georgia will be a majority-minority state. And what that will signal is that any party that wants to be competitive in the state is going to have to reckon with what it means to address the issues of health care, of jobs, and of justice. So let's dig into just some Georgia history to really figure out and and investigate why this is such a big deal. The period of Reconstruction lasted from 1863 with the Emancipation Proclamation to the Compromise of 1877. Reconstruction ended the remnants of Confederate secession and abolished slavery, making the newly freed slaves citizens with civil rights ostensibly guaranteed by three new constitutional amendments known as the Reconstruction Amendments. So the first one is the 13th Amendment, which abolished slavery. The second one, and the one that's being talked about now, is the 14th Amendment, which federalized equal rights for freedmen or former slaves. However, due to voting restrictions and suppressions, such as poll taxes, grandfather clauses, and literacy tests, uh, African Americans didn't meaningfully get the right to vote until the Voting Rights Act of 1964. And the last one is the 15th Amendment, which extended the right to vote for freedmen, though on paper, uh, never actually was realized again until the Voting Rights Act of 1964. So even though this amendment was on the blo- on the books, uh, you had various state laws and Jim Crow laws that really barred black people from voting effect in effect. Um, let's also remember that women didn't get the right to vote until the 19th Amendment. And but black women didn't really weren't really able to exercise their votes until, again, the Voting Rights Act of 1964. So on the political front, President Andrew Johnson succeeded Lincoln after he was assassinated and was kind of iffy and tepid with Reconstruction. Uh, Republican Ulysses S. S. Grant, who was uh, president from 1869 to 1877, broke with him. Grant used the Reconstruction Acts, which had been passed over Johnson's veto, to enforce civil rights for recently freed African Americans. Uh, This is a part of American history that we don't hear a lot about, is Reconstruction, yet it's such an important part as to um, how the KKK got formed, which I will later get to, and basically how the South became segregated. By the 1870s, Southern Democrats opposing Reconstruction, yes, the Democrats were the ones who opposed Reconstruction, the Republicans are the ones 
who supported it. You will hear Republicans talk about how they freed the slaves all over the place. But it's not until the Civil Rights Act that those two camps reversed. And a lot of the Southern Democrats, or the Dixiecrats as they're called, um, became Republican because the Republicans then were against the Civil Rights Act. Okay. So these Dixiecrats are supported armed attacks on black people, um, including the Memphis riots, the New Orleans massacre, and the Colfax massacre. So these attacks were carried out by groups like the Red Shirts, the White League, and White Liner Rifle Clubs, which were really paramilitary terrorist organizations that attacked black people. Um, The elections of 1876 were accompanied by heightened violence across the Deep South, a combination of ballot stuffing and intimidating black votes suppressed their vote, even in majority black counties. Uh, The White League, which was active in Louisiana, was part of this violent intimidation tactics. After Republican Rutherford B. Hayes won the disputed 1876 presidential election, which was actually compromised, the National Compromise of 1877, which was a corrupt bargain, was reached. The white Democrats in the South agreed to accept Hayes' victory if he withdrew the last federal federal troops from the South, which guaranteed um, African-American rights. So once that happened, with the end of the political role of these Northern troops, the president had no method to enforce Reconstruction. And thus, the backroom deal signaled the end of American Reconstruction, and Southern states, in response, rapidly passed laws disenfranchising Black people and implementing racial segregation or Jim Crow laws. Uh, In 1876, South Carolina also had a state election. And despite the terrorism, intimidation, murder, and voter fraud, uh, the white supremacist party lost. Wade Hampton, an aristocrat and former Confederate general, ran for governor on the self-declared white supremacist Democratic ticket. He was followed by an army of red shirts who he incited to violence while distancing himself from it. Incumbent Daniel Chamberlain was initially certified as the victor, prompting red shirt mobs to march on the state house. On the second try, they gained entry and neither the legitimately elected representatives nor the insurgents would leave the building, leaving two separate governments to operate in the state. The coup of 1876 was an attempt to hold the country hostage to end Reconstruction, which worked, and it led. It also led to Jim Crow. So think of the red shirts as the red MAGA hats, and think of what happened in South Carolina and compare it to what happened last Wednesday, which I will get to. So for the, almost the next hundred years, 
Jim Crow laws enforced racial, racial segregation in the South between the end of Reconstruction in 1877 and the Civil Rights Movement in the 1960s. And just to let you know, Jim Crow was the name of a minstrel routine called Jump Jim Crow, performed in blackface beginning in 1828. It codified the law of dehumanization, second-class status of black people until the Civil Rights Act in 1964, which is the reason blackface, where it comes from, is so racist. And why white people in blackface nowadays really does bring up exactly what we're seeing now. So given that history, for the first time, Georgia elected a black senator and a Jewish senator. Um, And it's quite remarkable considering that history, considering how in 2013, the Supreme Court weakened part of the federal oversight of the Voting Rights Act and voter rolls face purges that disproportionately targeted minority voters closures at many polling stations force people to wait in line and wait longer to vote and the insurrectionist mob not to mention the confederate flags that they were carry that they carried into the capital last wednesday echoed the kind of backlash seen after reconstruction When the day dawned in D.C., the nation expected a very different kind of drama to play out, with some Republicans planning to object to the Electoral College vote count. By mid-morning, thousands of Trump supporters were gathering for a so-called Save America march, not far from the White House. There to protest President Trump's November election defeat, just 14 days before Joe Biden's inauguration. At noon, the president took to the stage, fueling the fire of anger and dissent. We will never give up. We will never concede. It doesn't happen. He called on Congress to reject the election results, an election he lost by 7 million votes, but continues to call rigged, despite zero evidence. We're going to walk down to the Capitol. You'll never take back our country with weakness. You have to show strength and you have to be strong. Meanwhile, at the Capitol, armed crowds gathered and police were grossly underprepared for what was about to happen, despite the known threats posed by some protesters. Madam Speaker, the Vice President and the United States Senate. By 1.30, the House and Senate broke off to debate separately after GOP Representative Paul Gosar and Texas Senator Ted Cruz objected to Arizona's electoral college votes for Joe Biden. I rise up for myself and 60 of my colleagues to object to the uh, counting of the electoral ballots from Arizona. On the Senate side, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell bluntly confronted his Republican colleagues. The voters, the courts, and the states have all spoken. If we overrule them, it would damage our republic forever. As debate continued inside, outside, President Trump supporters were arriving, and the mood had distinctly changed. 
Demonstrators soon climbing the walls and scaffolding, violently confronting law enforcement. It was clear that the crowd was intent on causing harm to our officers by deploying chemical irritants on police. While inside, the vice president was whisked away by the Secret Service. As the mob moved in, the entire capital went into lockdown. But protesters were already inside, some carrying Confederate flags. The law enforcement presence was no match for the sheer size of the invasion, and now many facing criticism as images of them showing little resistance are emerging. This man taking a selfie with a Capitol Police officer as other police stand nearby. In the House chamber, lawmakers huddled in the balcony as armed security barricaded the door. At one point, shots fired. A protester hit. She eventually dies. They brought out a woman on a stretcher, rushed her inside. We did see uh, blood gushing. And there's now smoke coming from over by the House gallery. For hours, while his supporters rampaged through the Capitol, breaking onto the Senate floor, into Nancy Pelosi's office, the president said nothing. By 4 o'clock, President-elect Biden publicly called on Trump to stop the mob. I call on President Trump to go on national television now to fulfill his oath and defend the Constitution and demand an end to this siege. Minutes later, Trump released a video statement full of lies about the election, but telling them to go home. It was eventually taken down from all social media sites. I know you're pain. I know you're hurt. We had an election that was stolen from us. But you have to go home now. We have to have peace. So go home. We love you. You're very special. We love you. You are special. Those were the words of the president about the people that had just stormed the Capitol building. Um, so a very strange turn of events. By 5 o'clock, law enforcement had started reclaiming control of some parts of the Capitol grounds. Multiple sources telling ABC News President Trump repeatedly refused to send in the National Guard before finally agreeing in the late afternoon. 6 o'clock, a citywide curfew ordered by the mayor went into effect. A total of just 14 arrests by Capitol Police, 13 for suspected unlawful entry into the Capitol. D.C. police saying they carried out 26 arrests on Capitol grounds. But much of the Trump-supporting mob simply walked away. A stark contrast from the past summer in Lafayette Park, where largely peaceful Black Lives Matter protesters were met with a military show of force. Physical confrontations. Heavily armed and armored National Guardsmen lined up on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. The double standard on how law enforcement responded glaringly apparent, and not only in the nation's capital. Over the summer in Kenosha, police officers at a protest over the police shooting of Jacob Blake gave armed white teenager Kyle Rittenhouse water, who later shot and killed two people. His lawyers say it was self-defense. NBA players had protested Blake's shooting last summer by walking off the court. And again last night, dismayed by the perpetual double standard when it comes to police response, the Boston Celtics and Miami Heat walking off the court before the game.
teams issuing a joint statement before returning to play, saying the drastic difference between the way protesters this past spring and summer were treated and the encouragement given to today's protesters who acted illegally just shows how much more work we have to do. Okay, first of all, let me just say, wow, okay, I am still absolutely gobsmacked over what happened last Wednesday, and Wednesday, January 6, 2021, will live in infamy. I mean, I knew that white supremacy was bold and brazen and violent but this is like next level think about it the u.s capital had not been breached since the war of 1812 when we did it i I, I just i just i'm sorry i need a moment okay moment is over so (laughs) i i think there's so many threads to this and so many issues and so many questions and one question is what happened to law enforcement I mean if I were to build a defund the police campaign I would just use this capital police and how they failed to 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 protect the capital. I mean, isn't that like their job? So how did law enforcement miss this? Or were they collaborators? Well, uh, let's be real. This violence on January 6th had been planned for a while. Um, BuzzFeed has a good piece on this. And USA Today published December 31st, really laid it out and said, and this was published on New Year's Eve, okay? Quote, at the urging of President Donald Trump, however, diehard supporters are planning to descend on the nation's capital on January 6th to pressure Republican lawmakers into aligning themselves with the doomed effort to overthrow, overturn Joe Biden's electoral victory. Knife fights, shouting matches, and verbal harassment of Trump's opponents accompanied previous demonstrations following Biden's election win in November. Now, federal and local law enforcement are bracing for what may be the most intense Trump protests yet as Congress is poised to formally declare Biden president-elect, unquote. I mean, that's as plain as day, so I don't understand what happened. I really don't get it. Like, what an embarrassment. All those layers of law enforcement. And so everybody just had their, their like, thumb stuck up their ass? Like, I don't understand. Anyway, In addition, the Anti-Defamation League had been telling the FBI, telling various areas of law enforcement that, you know, something big's going to happen on January 6th. And they even wrote a blog entry two days before, citing previous gatherings of MAGA supporters as, quote, some of the previous protests 
including at the November 14th Million MAGA March in D.C. and at rallies on December 12th, featured extremists in attendance and violence. Those included incidents in which black churches were vandalized, individuals were assaulted, and a degree of chaos ensued, unquote. Like, were they too busy tapping the phone lines of Black Lives Matter activists? Was that why they had nothing left in the tank? I don't, I, again, I don't get it. Like, even as somebody who's even wary about the effectiveness of police as I am, where I believe the police have to prove to us that they are um, of use, that they actually solve crimes, that they that they actually keep us safe. I think they should provide data on that, like at a at regular intervals. Even I was shocked at how easy it was for a bunch of mega people to scale the walls of Congress and in some cases walk up the steps and just walk right in. And if that weren't enough, Trump himself tweeted on December 19th in 2020, big protest in D.C. on January 6th. Be there, will be wild. Um... So, how much more forewarning did they need? The police, the Capitol Police, shot into a car of a woman, a black woman, who ran into the barricade uh, just, I think, a couple of years ago. And they shot her, they killed her, and she had a baby in the back seat. So, I mean, when they see black and brown people, if you think of, for example, Standing Rock protests, for example, right? Remember those? Remember the violence that Native Americans um, just, like, they they encountered with the police? Uh, up here in Canada, I think of Wet'suwet'en. And I think the same thing happens in Canada, too, because the Mi'kmaq um, fisheries issue Earlier in the fall of 2020, um, you had white people, white white fishermen setting fire to the lobster fisheries and even set fire to a van with who with people inside and the police just stood by. So the police definitely have discretion and they definitely decide who they want to inflict violence upon through the color of their skin. I don't think after after last Wednesday, anybody could doubt that who is credible at this point. So in other words, the police are racist, which, you know, this podcast has been telling you since jump. But even though I'm gobsmacked, I shouldn't be surprised and neither should you. And here's why. The destruction and violence of the fascist white supremacist MAGA movement, also known as Trumpism, has inspired a lot of violence in the past four or five years. Think of Alexandre Bissonnette here in Canada, who on January 29th, 2017, um, opened fire and killed six people. He had an obsession with Trump. By the way, that three-year anniversary is coming up. 
sorry, four-year, my bad, four-year anniversary is coming up. Um, the mass shooting that killed 22 in El Paso in August 2019. Uh, the manifesto echoed Trumpism and detailed his hatreds, his hatred for immigrants, saying the attack is a response to the Hispanic invasion of Texas. Uh, Better O'Rourke said openly that the president's open racism is an invitation to violence. The writing has been on the wall since his maiden speech coming down the escalator calling immigrants rapists and criminals. And uh, many of his rallies, uh, I remember I'm thinking of one in like in 2018 talked about the um, what they called the migrant caravans. He said, that's an invasion. I don't care what they say. I don't care what the fake media says. That's an invasion of our country. Better O'Rourke later called the president a white supremacist. Let's not forget the Tree of Life massacre in October 2018. A man walked into a synagogue and killed 11 people in Pittsburgh. And he said that the perpetrator blamed Jews for helping what he called, quote, invaders, unquote, in the Central American migrant caravans who were trying to enter the U.S. In March 2019, the Christchurch terrorist attack used Trump to explain why he chose to gun down at least 49 Muslims um, in his 74-page manifesto. The 28-year-old shooter uh, posted it online and said, that he committed the killings to show the invaders that our lands will never be their lands. And he hailed Trump as a symbol of renewed white identity and common purpose. So we knew this man was a white supremacist. We knew he was practicing white supremacy uh, much in the historical nature of America, as I went through earlier in this program. But, um, this to me was never a question and yet I think a lot of people did not want to come out and say it I remember um on 60 Minutes Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was asked whether or not she thinks Trump is racist she just said yes and the pearl clutching around that was really it was it was unnecessary and it was stupid um the insurrect this insurrection is obvious is also the violent outgrowth outgrowth of a belief system that argues that white people who elevate whiteness and use it to dominate every section of society politics and economics really should have unlimited use and hold and dominance over the levers of power. And violence is really what is used to enforce that belief, um, especially from those whose white identity is threatened by an increasingly diverse citizenry. I also want to point out that identity politics of the past few years has has been, um, has really been dominated by white identity politics. But because white people don't like to be reminded that they're white, 
for some weird reason. Uh, if some people think that that's racist, if you point out that they're white, which is beyond me, uh, because that's not true. Um, white people and white, the white grievance industrial complex is what has been used to politically and economically and socioeconomically depress the advancement of black people, especially indigenous people and other people of color. Um, and white, white supremacy is, is really in the bones and the marrow of both Canada and the U.S. Joy Reid of MSNBC had a brilliant um, analysis of these differences and how white supremacy plays out and how it plays out in the psyche of the people who are, you know, think they have the right to storm the Capitol and to install any government that they feel that they want, um, therefore disenfranchising everybody else. And it's more than selfishness. It's more than white privilege. It really is. It really is white supremacy. And it really is the way um, we are all, uh, you know, raised and, and, and socialized to think that white is right and that um, white is superior and their needs, their thoughts, their desires, their their th- everything is more superior than that of um, anybody else. And, you know, there's a patriarchy in there, too, which I will get to later. And there's the patriarchy is that most of who you saw were white men and that white men and their their. um their word is final and it suppresses everybody else's. Um, Their needs are to be attended to uh, whenever they feel that they need to be attended to. Their desires should be, um, should be catered to uh, by whomever and whenever that is white supremacy. White supremacy is also um, organizational, if you think of it. Uh, white people who are at the top of an organization, who are the managers and the directors and the senior management and the C-suite, while people of color are at the bottom, are the workers. That is a plantation. That is not diversity. I would like to remind people, speaking of diversity, that diversity is not a cure for racism. The abolishing of white supremacy is the cure for racism. And if you think about it, South Africa was diverse, but they were, but the distribution was such that black people were at the bottom the so-called quote-unquote coloreds were somehow in the middle negotiating white supremacy and the whites were on the top. 
and committing horrific human rights abuses. So let's listen to Joy Reid, who had a beautiful um, analysis of this, and listen to what she has to say. It's, it's, it's sort of ironic to be on with you and with Rachel, and Rachel in particular, um, because I can go back to 2014 when I would be on Rachel's show as a correspondent at curfew time in Baltimore when I was covering the Freddie Gray uprisings. Mm. And these were mass marches um, that were in, in regard to police taking Freddie Gray's body and treating it like a rag doll and flinging him into the back of a police van and then riding around with him unshackled in that van until the rag doll broke and he died. And he died alone in the back of a car being brutalized for no reason other than making eye contact with police as he rode his bike. And the uprisings um, that took place after Freddie Gray brought in what a, a level of policing that I've never witnessed ever in life. It looked like a war zone. Police brought in tanks. They brought in body armor. They were wearing full body armor rubber suits where they almost looked robotic, full gear, enormous, powerful weaponry. And they were phalanxed out all across Baltimore, Penn and North. They were standing menacingly waiting to brutalize anyone who even looked at them funny. The level of force, the level of just almost indiscriminate rudeness, cruelty, hardness of those police officers and at curfew time, which would be nine o'clock and then almost every night during that uprising, at some point I would go on with you, Rachel, and describe to you what I was seeing. And it was terrifying. And what terrified me in those moments in Baltimore were not the marchers. I was never afraid among the marchers. The marchers just wanted justice. They just didn't think it was okay to just kill a guy because he looked at the police funny. I was afraid of them. I was afraid of the cops because they were menacing. They knew those marchers were coming every night. They knew there was going to be a curfew every night. The great Elijah Cummings would walk people home and get them to go home because he didn't want them out after curfew. But there would always be some guys who would stay out after the curfew, who would refuse to go home, who would claim the right to be in their streets. And I was never afraid of them. I was afraid of the cops. The reason, as Claire talked about, that these people were so unafraid of the cops who were sparsely distributed through our capital, which hasn't been breached since 1812, when it was burned. The reason they could easily and casually, with their cameras on, film themselves throwing things through the walls of our capital, our property, going inside the capital, sitting in uh, Speaker Pelosi's office, casually take pictures of themselves, have that played on Fox News, they know that they are not in jeopardy. Because the cops are taking selfies with them, walking them down the steps to make sure they're not hurt, taking care with their bodies, not like they treated Freddie Gray's body. White Americans aren't afraid of the cops. White Americans are never afraid of the cops, even when they're committing insurrection, even when they're engaged in attempting to occupy our capital to steal the votes of people who look like me. Because in their minds, they own this country, they own that capital, they own the cops, the cops work for them, and people like me have no damn right to try to elect a president. 
because we don't get to pick the president. They get to pick the president. They own the president. They own the White House. They own this country. And so when you think you own it, you own the place, you ain't afraid of the police because the police are you and the police reflect back to them. We're with you. You're good. We're not going to hurt you because you're not them. Guarantee you if that was a Black Lives Matter protest in D.C., there would already be people shackled, arrested or dead. Shackled, arrested, en masse or dead. Cunningham on here. She'll tell you how they treated her in Ferguson. Put Alicia Garza on here. She'll tell you how they treated her at every Black Lives Matter march. Get Patrice Colors on. They'll tell you. They'll tell you what it feels like to protest peacefully and unarmed and have how the police will treat you if you're black. That's it. They're not afraid of the cops because they know the cops are cool with it. Uh, police officers of other jurisdictions like Philadelphia and Chicago, for example, took part in these quote unquote demonstrations. And the police really are the paramilitary wing of white supremacy. The police have always been infiltrated by KKK members, members of the red shirts, um, really violent uh, paramilitary militia and organiza militia organizations. Also, the, the armed forces have also been infiltrated, or you could say that they are um, a, a wing. Because if you think about the armed forces, they impose white supremacy internationally where police departments and law enforcement do it domestically. Researchers have found that the remaining white, reminding white people of changing racial demographics causes them to adapt, adopt more negative racial attitudes. And these reminders usually lead politically unaffiliated white people to support um, a stronger attachment to conservative causes politically. In the book White Identity Politics by Ashley Jardina, um, she documents the causes and the consequences of white identity politics, finding that the increased salience of whiteness as a social category corresponds largely with how the demographics have changed. This has created a fear amongst some white people that their hold on power has been increasingly precarious. Highlighted in America, most sharply by the ascendance of Barack Obama to the White House. And here is where the white grievance industrial complex really goes into overdrive. Um, white people um, through fear make up perceived slights and injustices which they in turn they then turn to social and political conservative principles which are then echoed through the media and the media is mostly white and platformed by conservative parties and uh, I'm talking about big C and small C conservatives um I think the the Conservative Party of Canada is no stranger to white supremacy and courting Trumpism and white supremacists in their party. Uh, so one of the things that that the um, 
conservative party has done is I've, you know, I have a little timeline here and I'm going to go through it. But before I go through it, I just want to say that examples of the white grievance industrial complex include statements like discrimination against whites is as big a problem today as discrimination against blacks or other minorities or reverse racism. Reverse racism is not a thing. Uh, or things have changed so much that I often feel like a stranger in my own country. That's an indication that uh, the the person speaking feels like they're losing power and control over the identity, their identity and the identity of the country in which they were born and grew up in. Um, and that immigrants get more than their fair share of government resources, that people on welfare often have it better than people who work for a living. This was a common saying during Brexit. And Brexit, that Brexit vote was also underpinned by white supremacy. So a lot of the social and political trends we've seen over the past few years have had a common, um, I guess, well from which they from which they spring. So let's go to the Conservative Party. Uh, let's go back to Bill C fifty one and the movements that be Bill C fifty one was designed to suppress <clears throat> are indigenous struggles for self-determination and sovereignty, migrant justice and survival strategies, and struggles against resource extraction. Uh, right now, if you've noticed um, uh, my mic, I'm missing my mic, to be honest, my regular mic, because I'm in Alberta. And here in Alberta, Jason Kenney passed uh, Bill 1 last summer during COVID. His first bill was this one. It was known as the Critical Infrastructure Defense Act, which makes it illegal for anyone who protests on essential infrastructure, uh, including entering onto, damaging, obstructing, interfering with the construction of said infrastructure, or even encouraging someone to do those things. It criminalizes peaceful public protests, marches down city streets like Black Lives Matter and indigenous protests. They have, the Conservative Party have been prominent in pushing Islamophobia. Um, if you think of the niqab debate, Harper once said that Islam is a culture that is anti-women, and he doubled down on that. In response to a question on the niqab, he was also the one who, before Quebec, threatened leg legislation banning the Muslim face covering for anyone dealing with or working for the federal government, if re-elected in 2015. Thank goodness that didn't happen. So we would have had our own Bill 21 uh, nationally due to Harper. During a leader's debate in 2015, Stephen Harper re referred to old stock Canadians in a question about refugee policy. Old stock Canadians is a term referring to European Canadians whose family have lived in Canada for several generations that is white, Christian, and English-speaking. And of course, the French have um, something similar called pure Len. And anybody from Quebec who's not pure Len knows what I'm talking about. The Trumpism in the Conservative Party was really... 
um, exemplified by Kelly Leach. Remember her? Whose controversial plan to screen immigrants for anti-Canadian values um, really hit on those Trumpism and that nativism um, current running through Canada. And along with Chris Alexander, launched the now infamous Barbarian Practices tip line. She was also described as Canada's Donald Trump. Andrew Scheer spoke at Parliament Hill on behalf of the Yellow Vest movement with his Make Canada Great Again hats and proud nationalist signs. I'm not saying that he was wearing a hat, but people in the crowd were. Um, People in the crowd even... Um, even used a Nazi salute. And I remember that Andrew Scheer spoke on Parliament Hill on behalf to the Yellow Vesters and wholeheartedly support them, even sharing a stage with a known white supremacist at their rally on Parliament Hill. In September, Jason Kenney called intersectionality a kooky academic theor- uh, theory. And according to a Twitter user, he said the Twitter user who was watching the um, press conference where Jason Kenney said that, said, quote, so Kenny called intersectionality a kooky academic theory and then went on to spout racist conspiracy theories about COVID being the federal government's fault for being too close to the WHO and China. Yeah, he knows who his base is and he refuses to lose them, unquote. In November, Jason Kenney blamed the South Asian community in Calgary for the rising spread of COVID in Alberta instead of the anti-maskers or anti-lockdown protesters who were not wearing a mask and who were congregating, but mostly white. Um, He said... Quote, we know that it's a tradition to have big family gatherings at home, and we think this is one of the reasons why we have seen such, seen a much higher level spread in the community than other parts of the population, unquote. Yet did not invest, interrogate the fact that many in the South Asian community work service jobs outside their homes and some are even essential workers. A lot of them are even essential workers. Um, Aaron O'Toole, who, you know, carries on that conservative mantle uh, with his Take Canada Back slogan. If you, um, if you go back to the piece that I inserted on what happened during the Capitol, one of the things that happened was Donald Trump um, having um, Donald Trump inciting the protesters, uh, or sorry, the rioters. Um, he, yeah, he incited them by saying that it was time to take our country back. So I would like to know what who Aaron Toole is taking the country back from and who he thinks he's lost this country to. He has used misinformation. Um, For example, as you know, 
Aaron O'Toole told a bunch of uh, conservatives at Ryerson that when when Egerton Ryerson was called in by Hector Langevin and people, it was meant to try and provide education. That's what he told a bunch of conservative Ryerson students in on the call. It became a horrible program that really harmed people, and we have to learn from that, and I wear orange, but we're not helping anyone by misrepresenting our past. And he later claimed that former Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau opened more residential schools than Edgerton Ryerson did, and said no one is trying to take Trudeau's name off Montreal's airport. So let's talk about white women. Um, there are no shortage of white women uh, at these at the the insurrection. Um, I think what I will I will just say this: the coverage of Ashley Babbitt, the white woman who was killed by the police trying to climb into, um, I guess, the Capitol, uh, just irks me. The assumption of her innocence and that, oh my gosh, this is such a loss, and um, was never is never afforded to black women. It was never afforded to the woman who ran in the barricade that I mentioned earlier. It was never afforded to Breonna Taylor, who was assumed guilty, assumed um, assumed a criminal, assumed deserving of what she got. And that, again, is white supremacy. Ashley Babbitt and the innocence afforded to white women is the same innocence that was afforded to Melania Trump and is still afforded to Melania Trump, that somehow she's been put under Donald Trump's spell. I mean, Melania Trump was showing off um, uh, vases at the White House for her new coffee book. She had a photographer there. Her staff came in to beg her to do something, to talk to Trump and to end this insurrection. And she ignored them and went back and she refused, ignored them, went back to her coffee table book. And it just goes to show how unfeeling and callous um, these women are. So uh, Ashley Babbitt was there for an insurrection. She decided to go in without considering the consequences and was shot like the criminal she was. You know, she is described as never afraid to speak her mind. And her family tells us what a what a you know, what a lover of freedom she was. And the national media has been mourning her loss as though it, it, it was, it was an innocent woman who got caught in the melee. I mean, it's, it's disgusting to be honest. And the reason for that is because within a white supremacist framework, white women benefit by being taken care of and being protected by white men as their innocence is guarded and protected by these same white men. However, these men also turn around and extract agency and sometimes sexual tribute in the form of sexual assault as though they're entitled to these women's body, as though it is a pact that white men and white women make. Um, 
this is how white supremacy hurts white women. And white men, under the guise of whiteness and patriarchy, think and feel that they're entitled to women's body and loyalty in a similar way that Trump expects his followers and his colleagues to perform penance and loyalty to him. You, If you looked at the video and you looked at the footage, the crowd turned on Mike Pence as soon as Trump turned on Mike Pence because he wasn't going to do what Trump wanted. That is white supremacy, and even white people suffer from it. And let's not forget that white women are the PTA for white supremacy. Their work on social media, their contacting of elected officials, their putting flyers or sending emails or, you know, running groups are and other administrative roles have allowed and white supremacy to flourish they did it during segregation they did it for the kkk and now they're doing it for qanon the anti-vax movement and maga to and they've allowed and they've been instrumental in the proliferation of those groups to gain momentum and followers um I don't think that it can be, you know, stressed how the white supremacy framework works and how it works with patriarchy to ensure that whiteness is on top. And until until we interrogate and attack white supremacy, we will always have this threat. And if you think Canada is safe, you're sadly mistaken because Aaron O'Toole and the conservatives just took down a a donation page on their website that specifically said that Justin Trudeau is trying to steal the next election. So think about that as, you know, you move through your life this week. All right, everybody, thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in again. And thank you for being patient with me. Um, I should be back next week. Uh, Have a great week and take care of yourselves because COVID doesn't joke. And, you know, there's a lot of shit happening. Take care of your mental health, y'all. Ciao.